If you have a child with type 1 diabetes, whether they were diagnosed five days ago or five years ago, you continue to have questions. These are the questions about the emotional side of living with diabetes, the questions about how to parent diabetes. I'm Joanne Robb, a psychotherapist and fellow T1D mom, and I've been parenting diabetes for almost 15 years. In this podcast, I'm here to answer your questions about the emotional and relational challenges that come with being a caregiver for a child with type 1 diabetes. Before we dive in, I have to remind you that I'm not a doctor and nothing that I offer here should be considered medical advice. If you want to make any changes to the way you or your child is managing their type 1, please be sure to check in with your doctor or medical team. Let's get started. Hello to everyone. Um, we have had a few episodes now with Justin Altshuler, who is the camp doctor at DYF and also specializes in type 1 and substance. Uh, in a private practice called Sequoia MD, I believe. Justin, is that right? Yep, that's right. Good. And um, he's back with us today to answer another listener question that got written in. Justin, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm delighted you're here. So we have a question from another listener. This mom writes in, thanks for the episode called The Nitty Gritty of Drugs and Alcohol with T1D Kids. So helpful. I was wondering if Dr. Justin has anything to add about harder drugs like cocaine or LSD or opiates and how a person with type one can manage if they're experimenting with those drugs. Ooh, big, big topic, really good topic. Um, so let's see, let's just sort of think about breaking this down a little bit. So I think that the first thing that I would, that I would really start with um, is just sort of an acknowledgement that the scientific literature on substance use in type 1 diabetes is, to put it very generously, thin. So there's not, there's not a whole lot that's been written about this. Um, and this is an area where I kind of spend a lot of my time, but it's not, and so I, I've, I've worked with, it, with, with this quite a bit, but it's not something where we have a really robust um, evidence base to sort of back anything up. Um, and when it comes to you know what the what the listener is talking about in terms of harder drugs, um, you know it's really diverse, and it's 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 probably um, it probably makes sense to sort of break things down into categories um, in terms of how I think about them. So um, I think, and I'm probably I'm gonna I'm sure I'm gonna come back to this point several times, but the the one place that I would really start is that. Um, is, is to think about, you know, the physiologic effects of the substance that is being used while it's being used. But honestly, I think more important than that is the context in which it's being used. And, and the reality that, you know, kids and adolescents with type 1 diabetes are at higher risk of depression. Um, they're at higher risk for anxiety. And they have a unique set of stresses that is, that is different than their peers. Um, I, I don't have firm data that says that they're they're per se more um, more at risk for substance use disorders, but it wouldn't surprise me if that data did come out. And I think when we're thinking about harder drugs, um, one of the things we really do need to be thinking about is is the overall mental health of the kid and the resilience of the kid, the resiliency of the kid, and and kind of the context in which that's happening. Can I slow you down right there? Because that there's yeah. an interesting point that I think you're making that I just want to highlight before you move on. 
Um, and you talked about this the first time we met about um, the higher risk for mental health issues. So I think that you're in, in the T1D population. I think we, what you're talking about, Justin, is the difference. And so I'm asking this, are we talking here about the difference between experimentation versus um, more regular or chronic use? I think you're talking a little yeah. bit about that when you're talking about context. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And I, I think I would think about this in a few ways. So, so one is sort of experimentation, which is in the grand scheme of things, a fairly normal adolescent behavior. Mm -hmm. um, one is the chronicity of use or how much something is used, right? Which is concerning sort of in and of itself. And then I think that the third thing that I would think about would be um, for lack of a better word, intent behind the use, right? So I'm, I'm, you know, I might only be using twice a week, but I'm using to excess and I'm using because I really can't handle, you know, or I, I'm, I'm having a really hard time and I'm sort of living my week to, to for Friday and Saturday night when I just get blasted out of my mind. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that to me is also quite concerning, even if, you know, it's quote only a couple times a week. So it's it's thinking about it's thinking about that overall context as opposed to thinking about um, as as opposed to just sort of saying it's all the same. Okay, that's helpful. Yep. So um, if we sort of go through different types of of substances, I think that the other overarching theme that I I made at the, during the last episode and I'll make again today before launching into more specifics mm -hmm. is that diabetes is really hard to manage sober, right? <laughs> like like <Sorry>. diabetes <laughs> is really tricky, like counting carbs, figuring out to bolus, understanding the effect of exercise, all of those, all of those different things is really tricky for adults when they have their faculties totally intact, <laughs> right? And so then you, you sort of bring in the idea that, yeah, but these are not adults, these are adolescents. Um, and, um, and then, you know, all, pretty much all drugs of abuse, by definition, alter sensorium, right? They alter the way you think and feel, that's why <laughs> they're used. Mm -hmm. um, and so you think about trying to make complicated, you know, trying to make complicated, rational, cognitive decisions about a difficult to manage disease in the context of a substance being present, and it gets really tricky, right? Um, so, you know, within that, there's, I think things get, um, you know, I can sort of start to break things down. So we've talked a lot about alcohol, and I sort of would refer you back to those episodes, mm -hmm. because that for type one in particular is sort of an animal in and of itself. Um, if we think about stimulants, so illicit stimulants like cocaine and, and uh, methamphetamine, um, and to some extent, this is actually true for prescribed stimulants for kids that have ADHD as well. I would say that the effects of this are varied, right? So some people, so, so the big sort of overarching physiologic piece that I would think about is that it amps up your autonomic system. So you're thinking about, you know, increased adrenaline, increased heart rate, things like that, increased blood pressure. Um, and sometimes that can cause blood sugars to go up. And sometimes that can cause blood sugars to go down. Um, and sometimes it can have very little effect. And if you're sitting there listening to this thinking, great. So sometimes it goes up and sometimes it goes down. That lot of help that is like, you're right. Like <laughs> you're, you're totally on with that. Right. And just like a lot of things with diabetes, my suspicion is, is that it's the amount of insulin on board that tends to cause it to go down. So, um, 
adrenaline release in the context of, of relative insulin scarcity will cause blood sugars to rise, whereas um, adrenaline and stimulant use in the context of relative insulin, general, like a relatively high amount of insulin is going to cause it to fall. Um, but I don't have hard data that really backs that up. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the other thing to really think about with stimulants, you know, short term, once or twice a weekend is sort of one thing, but thinking about chronic use or longer term use, you know, we think about diabetes management and, and, you know, complication prevention and all that kind of stuff really is blood sugar thing, but it's actually much more complicated than that. And one of the other big contributors to that is blood pressure and the stimulants all do a heck of a number increasing blood pressure. And so for folks with type one and chronic stimulant use, and I don't mean prescribed stimulants because your blood pressure is being monitored. And I don't mean like once a weekend, um, there's, I think a much higher, you know, I have a much more concern about cardiovascular and, and renal risk. So that's, I think, sort of stimulants. I don't know if you have more questions or want to sort of clarify that and then we can move on. Yeah, I do have one more question, which is my understanding is with stimulants, there's also appetite suppression. I know for ADHD drugs, for in particular, those kids often don't eat as much. So how would somebody think about that? Yeah, so it's a great question. Um, And I I think I would, would, so there is appetite suppression. Um, You're absolutely right. I would, I would shift that a little bit. I think to thinking more about decision-making while on stimulants. And so particularly when we're talking about, you know, illicit stimulant use and not paying attention to diabetes, the fact that there's appetite suppression probably raises the risk of lows a little bit, right? But it's, I would, my concern would be much more about not paying attention to a CGM or not putting the CGM on because of the stimulant use, right? Rather than, the appetite suppression per se driving lows. Like, you know, uh-huh. yeah. when you're on stimulants, even if your appetite is suppressed and you have a low blood sugar, um, assuming that you recognize that low blood sugar is there, you can respond to it. Um, it's much more of the not recognizing that it's there that I think becomes a bigger mm-hmm. issue. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, what I, the theme already that I'm hearing, Justin, is you need a very good wingman. Like if you're going to be experimenting with these kinds of illicit drugs, you really are needing to think through, which is unfortunate because it's, you know, or unfortunate is the wrong word. It feels like thinking through getting support is, is almost the antithesis of what experimenting with illicit drugs like this is, is as an experience. Right. Right. It's a more impulse. It's often a more impulsive choice. And so to imagine that someone's going to think it through, that's the bigger risk. It feels to me. I I would agree with that. And I I think sort of, you know, there is inherent risk with adolescent experimentation, right? Like we can't get away from that. I think that part of the message here is that the inherent risk with adolescent experimentation with illicit substances is just higher. Like, like the risk is not the same. And I, you know, I think in certain ways that kind of makes me a downer, but I, I think it's actually really important just to be honest about things. And I think that the risk is, and the risk is higher now. That doesn't necessarily mean that the approaches are going to be different, right? Um, and, and, but I think having real conversations with, with our kids about the fact that like, this is, this is a very, very risky behavior. This is probably more risky than your friends doing it. 
um, is, you know, and I'm sure you've had episodes where you can talk about other ways of sort of <laughs> fueling that need for risk-taking or, or, or channeling that need for risk-taking, but I, I think this is just, this is just a very risky, this is just very risky terrain. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. We're gonna take a quick break and be back with more answers. One of the hardest things about diabetes is the food. Your kid has to eat, but there's so many foods that send them high or are tricky to dose for. And at the same time, you don't want to restrict their food choices. You want them to be able to feel like every other kid. To help you navigate the many challenges of food and eating with type one, I've created the Sweet Talk Snack Course a free mini course that gives you six bite-sized lessons to support your T1D kid in having a healthy relationship with food and eating. Sign up for it at diabetessweettalk.com. If we sort of continue thinking through other substances and think about hallucinogens, and these are things like PCP or LSD or psilocybin, um, there, there isn't much, as far as I'm aware, of a direct blood sugar effect of the chemical itself. Now, when people are on those substances, there can be very intense emotions that come with it. And we all know how much emotions can push blood sugars around. But that's going to be much more context dependent as opposed to the chemical itself. Mm-hmm. I think what is what is different about, or, or what, what I would highlight with those drugs more is how dissociated or out of body people can be depending on the substance use, right? And, um, and that it's, it's just, you know, if it's, if, it's, if it's more difficult to make decisions about diabetes when you're, if you have done cocaine or, or amphetamines, um, I think to, to, to sort of, as much as you can say safely use um, hallucinogens, you need somebody or a setting that can manage your diabetes for you because it's probably not realistic to think about managing it yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, there's a huge amount of variability with this. People will say, well, I can, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, that's not, I'm not trying to dismiss any of that, but I think if I'm painting in broad brushstrokes, I would really just sort of say that um, you don't expect to be able to manage it um, be able to manage your blood sugars. And in terms of thinking about risk mitigation, you think about having someone that knows that they, you know, where they, when, at, at what levels they need to feed you, how to make sure the pump is working, you know, with automated insulin delivery, I think there is a lot more safety with all of this sort of in the short term. Um, but I think that that's, that's really the main, the main, excuse me, the main thing that I would think about with, with that class of, of drugs. Okay. That makes sense. Um, questions about that or, or other things before I kind of move on? I don't think so. I think that what I'm thinking about is um, I know that there are studies and environments now where people are like guides, you know, <clears throat> these are for adults. Mostly I haven't ever heard of a teen doing this, but I have heard of adults who are, you know, using people who are guides for either um, psilocybin or mushrooms um, who are helping support people who want to have a different sort of uh, mind experience. And yeah. I feel like you'd need to find a guide who, who um, you know, could also support your diabetes management. 
Right. And I, I, I think it's important. Yes. So, I, you know, I think we can have a much longer discussion about this is, you know, despite the fact that I'm an addictions doc, like the things that people use, they're just chemicals, right? There's very little judgment that goes with that. And, and, you know, chemicals in my mind are not really good or bad. It has everything to do with how you're using it and the role that it's playing in your life. <laughs> right. And so if we think about opiates, they're a super helpful tool, right? Like if you're having surgery, if you're in the ICU, if you've broken your leg, like, like these are tools that we want to have. It's that like any tool, it can do a lot of things. And some of those, some of those things are going to be really positive, And some of those things are going to really not be positive. And so this, none of this, I think, is really a comment. I mean, this is, I think, where I started about the role that the chemicals are playing in someone's life and the, and the intention behind the use and, you know, if they're impairing function and why people are using them and all of that stuff, because I think that that becomes a really important piece to sort of think about, right? So I have, you know, I have patients that have used psilocybin a few times and it's been really helpful to them, right? I mean, these, these people are older. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of really, in my mind, really exciting work coming out around hallucinogens and treatment of both substance use and other mental health issues. And we, yes. I mean, we need more tools, right? So it's not, the, the message behind this is not that, you know, if you do this once, the world is gonna end. It's, it's really, I think, much more about, about safety and about making sure that if you're using chemicals, understanding why that is and making sure that that's a good coping strategy for the challenges that you're facing. Mm -hmm. And I think when we're talking about teens, right, because that's really where this started, it's recognizing that, that that is a particularly high risk period. And, you know, I'm not sure I would, <laughs> I'm not sure I would say it's a great idea for, for 15 year olds to be doing a bunch of of mushrooms um, as an experiment, particularly if you have type one, right? I mean, the other the other sort of backdrop to this that we have is that we do have a fair amount of research saying that the later the brain, the, the later it is that the brain is exposed to these chemicals, the better. Um, and that's true across the board. And so thinking not about no, but about delay, um, I think is a very helpful strategy for, for parents. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, I would think that part of that is because the brain, you know, it needs more time to develop, but also when you introduce those kinds of substances at younger ages, the brain is more likely to take them up in a way that's unhealthy. Is that, is that help me out here? Yeah, it's a great, I mean, it's a great question. And I think I would say that it's an area where there's, there's researchers that know much more about this than I am that can probably formulate this more more elegantly than I can. Um, I think that the way that I think about this a lot when I'm thinking about um, substance use is that our brain is lazy. And so our brain looks to solve problems in the way it has solved problems previously. So if you are stressed and the last 50 times you were stressed, you put on your running shoes and went for a run, then on the 51st time you are stressed, you are probably gonna engage in that same behavior because it has worked for you, right? Whereas if you are stressed and the last 50 times you've been stressed, you picked up a chemical, the 51st time you're gonna to look to pick up a chemical as well. And, and that pattern, the more you engage in it, the more entrenched it becomes. Mm -hmm. And so the, the more you can establish healthy patterns for how to 
dis respond to distress, right? So I'm distressed, I call my mom, I'm distressed, I call a friend, I'm distressed, I go for a run, I'm distressed. I, you know, there's a million things that we could do, right? Mm -hmm. um, the more that you've done that, the more likely you are to do that the next time you run into to mm -hmm. some episode of distress. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think of teen brains in particular as more plastic. So, right. right? So if my brain at my at my wise old age, um, were to pick that up, it might not need it in the same way that a teen brain would sort of pick up that as a habit more quickly. Does that feel accurate to you? That's my training teaches me that. Yeah, I, I think that's a, I think that's a very nice way of putting it. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's talk about opioids. Yeah. So I, I, I'm going to hijack your, um, your podcast for just a second for sort of two public service announcements. Sure, right. um, so the, the first one, right, is that um, most of the opiates that we're seeing on the streets now are fentanyl and fentanyl is really, really risky. And I, I, I don't, I, there's been a lot of messaging around that, but I, I want to kind of do my part to, <laughs> to also have that messaging. Um, and that the the consequences of experimentation around fentanyl are potentially really high because the lethal dose is really easy to accidentally wander into. Um, and so there's a lot of public health work that's been done around having Narcan everywhere, um, mm -hmm. which is the opioid reversal agent. And I just, uh, you know, I, I think for, as a doc and as parents, the first priority is really keeping our kids safe. And so I just want to kind of put a, a plug for, for that um, sort of step one. Um, so, you know, opiates, again, um, the, I don't think pose a particular risk to type one because of the chemical itself. It's much more of the patterns of behavior that go along with it that becomes risky. And then I think the other thing is, you know, it's hard to, you, you see in the news regularly now about relatively young kids that take a pill and, and stop breathing because fentanyl and the dose in that is just much higher than anybody thought and those pills look like pharmaceuticals they're street made to look like um they came out of someone's medicine cabinet and and so people get faked out and and again the, the i i hate being in a position where i feel like i'm, I'm finger wagging or um or you know sort of being alarmist but it is like the risk is really significant and i think it's just important to recognize that um when we relate that to type one, I don't think, you know, there's not a lot that comes to mind um, around opiates in particular outside of the usual sort of, you know, ultimate sensorium and things like that that come with using drugs. I think the one thing is they can make people really, really fatigued and sort of nodding out and, and sleeping a lot. And so that is definitely a scenario where so I could very easily see someone sleeping through low alarms. Um, and, and that's a concern, but unlike alcohol where that can happen, um, there isn't an effect of opiates directly lowering blood sugar in the same way that I'm aware of. Mm -hmm. Okay. It sounds like it's all just riskier. Like I'm thinking about a conversation I had earlier today with a type one mom, and we were talking about how, as someone with type one, you can pretty much do anything as long as you're prepared. But being prepared for substance use is a, just a trickier endeavor, um, yeah. right? I know I, it's a funny, it's yeah. like, it's almost an oxymoron. It doesn't go together. Um, um, but what you're saying is there are higher risks and it really just arises from the behaviors that come because of the impairment. 
Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I think that that's true. I think, I think it's, it's the impairment arising from the chemical use, but I, <clears throat> I think it's also, you know, it, it's important to recognize the difference between substance use and substance abuse, right? Mm -hmm. So if, you know, someone's at a party and they've never done cocaine before and they do a line of cocaine and they say, well, that was fun and all, but I really don't want to do that again. And they don't do it again. That's substance use, but that is not really substance. I mean, in my world of, of being an addiction stock, that's not substance abuse. Like that's kind of a one-off event. Okay. Now I know what that is. I'm not interested. Right. And so I think the other piece that I really worry about is with kids with type one is a full-blown substance substance abuse disorder, right? Where, where the substance use is driving daily life and the consequences of, you know, I, I think parents, I, I, you know, I think we, one of the things that I think about a lot with type one, with, with kids and young adults, both with type one is what's actually, like, where's the real risk? And the real risk is not in a few high and low blood sugars. The real risk is in a substance use disorder or mental health that's so compromised that they don't manage their diabetes for, for weeks, months, years, decades, right? That's the risk. And so I think when I, you know, when I'm thinking about substance use in young, in, in adolescents and young adults with type one, where my brain goes or the fear that comes alive for me has really to do with what if this transforms from use it a couple of times because that's normal adolescent experimentation to using it habitually mm -hmm. um, because that is that is then where diabetes management really falls apart and stays falling apart got it that makes sense i mean what you're saying here is so aligned with my general messaging which is you know it's nice to have good glycemic control and of course we want that <coughs> for our children but yep. the primary thing we need to focus on is relationship and strong relationship parent to child that's my message but in the service of good mental health, because yep. mental health as a backdrop or as a foundation, the diabetes management becomes not easy, but like less, um, less stressful, less. Yeah, I think that that's, I mean, I think that's a good way of putting it the way, you know, the way that I often talk to patients about this is I'll say, look, I have yet to meet someone who is doing great with diabetes, but the rest of their life is falling apart. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. So, so when people have significant depression, their relationships are tatters, they're not working, school's going poorly, whatever, whatever, right? Those people don't do well with their diabetes. Like their, their diabetes is not well managed. Mm -hmm. And the converse is, you know, usually when the rest of life is going well, right, you have pretty intact relationships, you're doing pretty well in school or work, um, you know, you're playing your sports, doing whatever it is. It's not that diabetes doesn't go through rocky periods, but the ship writes itself, right? You, you get through those rocky periods and things snap together. Um, and so I, I think part of the, 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 the message, which I do think aligns with what you're saying, is that we need to focus on the whole person because diabetes is a part of the whole person, right? And we have to have the whole person doing well. And if the whole person is doing well, lo and behold, diabetes generally does well. But trying to think about diabetes as separate from the whole person is really, um, it's not going to work. I love that, Justin. That is so good. Thank you. And thank Whatever. you for being here. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yep. 
Thanks again for listening today. If you want answers to your questions about parenting a kid with type 1, I'd like to invite you to join our live recording sessions so you can ask your questions in person. Not only will you get the support you need and deserve, but through the podcast, you'll be helping other T1D parents to know that they're not alone with the challenges they're facing. To join one of my live recording sessions, simply go to www.diabetessweettalk.com and click the banner at the top of the page to register. Again, go to www.diabetessweettalk.com and click the banner at the top of the page to register.